Morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Um, my name's Caleb, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Gateway. Um, we, today, we are just kind of right at the outset, want to uh, remind you, we, we kind of let you know in our communication this week, um, that obviously we are working our way through um, these chapters in Matthew, and uh, we come to Matthew chapter 8, some verses where we're talking about two men who are possessed by demons. And um, I suppose when you, when you approach a, a topic like this, you, can, you have a choice. Do we try our very best to make it as child-friendly as possible? And, and I think, to be honest, I struggled to do that. So what we're saying is, you know, if you've got young children and you just think, actually, you're not prepared to have that kind of conversation with them, then maybe find them something else to do. Um, if you're, you know, ready and prepared and able to do the follow-up conversations and questions, then good on you. Um, you know, kind of way to go. But, uh, but we're, we're talking about, you know, it's a fairly disturbing story or could be for children. Some children will struggle with that, no doubt. So just want to kind of warn you, um, yeah, kind of, I would say maybe like PG-12 territory uh, for today's talk, uh, potentially. So, uh, so we're going to dive right into the story um, this morning. Jesus has just, Joe, last week, if you remember, covered the part of the story where Jesus has traveled across the lake, Lake Galilee, with his friends in a boat, and, uh, and he has calmed a storm. If you remember, the, the question was, what kind of man is this? That's what his disciples were asking when he stills the wind and the waves. And uh, the next part of the narrative is that Jesus arrives at the other side of the lake. They're all in one piece. Oh, interesting aside, somebody once suggested to me that one of the reasons why Jesus was so at ease and able to, to sleep in the boat during the storm was that he might have actually built the boat himself. He was a carpenter living by Lake Galilee growing up. What else do you build out of wood around there? Uh, anyway, interesting thought. Um, just complete guesswork, by the way. You know, nothing in the Bible to ever suggest that. But, uh, but anyway, he reaches the other side of the lake, uh, an area with 10 towns and lots of, of non-Jews. The Bible calls these people Gentiles, people who were, who were, who were not part of God's chosen people, the Jews. And uh, they're living in 10, area, 10 towns around the area, hence why there are pigs in this story, um, because any self-respecting Jew would never keep or eat pigs. That was just something um, that we'll get onto a little bit later, but um, something that, that God had forbidden for them. So we're going to read the story and, uh, and kind of draw out what we can for us today. Okay, so this is starting at Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? This is very much the demons speaking rather than uh, the men, they're speaking through the men. Um, some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now, you know, 
The Bible's full of stories, right? This is a strange one, isn't it? Can we just kind of stop and acknowledge that? This is a really odd story, like a really strange story. What on earth is going on here? Uh, we we kind of need to acknowledge at the beginning that here in Matthew, we have a version of the story, Luke um, and Mark. Uh, we find the same story in Mark 5 and Luke 8, where curiously, there's only one man in this story rather than two. Um, I don't think we need to worry too much about that. You know, don't, don't need to let that kind of shake our faith too much. And we, But neither do we need to take the opposite extreme and pretend that these inconsistencies aren't there. It's just I don't know, there are lots of theories around why Matthew would describe there being two men. Um, none of them, I think, are particularly great theories. Uh, and I'm just going to ask Matthew face-to-face one day why he had two and the others didn't. Um, so given that we're looking at the Matthew version, I will be talking about there being two men uh, in this story, though I will borrow some detail from some of the other um, accounts a bit later on as well. Okay, so what we know is that from these, from the three accounts in, in, as a whole, these two men are in a really bad way. Like they are in a, a terrible way. They are naked. They are living in tombs. They are violent. They've obviously been tried, you know, people have tried to restrain them with chains, which hasn't worked and you know, they're able to break free from them. Um, they've, they've actually, in, other, in some of the other passages, they're described as howling and cutting themselves with sharp stones. Just stop and think about this for a moment. The, the mess that these two men find themselves in. There are some serious issues at play. They're going to be well known throughout the region and, and causing a real problem for people who are trying to bury their dead and go to the tombs. Um, you know, hence the attempts to, for people to shackle them with chains. Now, how do you explain what is really going on here? Uh, Rona and I, over recent months, have started getting into um, a, a series called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't know if there are any other fans of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's a kind of, yeah, Ali's with me on this. Uh, it, it's kind of, it's come out of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's all part of this kind of constructed world and uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. Lots of weird things happen, usually because of aliens. Um, it sounds a really terrible program, but actually it's quite enjoyable. And, uh, and on their team, there, there are these team, this team of agents who try and deal with and kind of protect the world from um, alien threats and things like this. But anyway, uh, on their team, they have two scientists who um, just basically have an ability to explain everything with science. There are perfectly reasonable scientific reasons why you can travel through time or why a ship can defy gravity and be found up in the clouds or even that somebody uh, who is mortally wounded can be, come back, can be brought back from the dead by using alien blood. It, it's a bit weird, but they, they scientists can explain everything and they, have, they can solve any problem. Now, when it comes to these two men in this story, um, you know, you could try and explain their situation by various different ologies, right? You could use psychology, what's going on in their minds to try and understand what's going on. Maybe some sociology, you know, what, what past previous relationships um, have kind of made them the way that they... Ah, that would probably be our modern approach to this situation. And yes, we have a good understanding of mental health these days, and there may well be factors at play there. 
I suspect we would try and, you know, ology our way out of this situation. You know, this is why these men are this way. The ology we probably wouldn't go for first is theology. Is, you know, what, is, is there some work of good or evil going on here? Is there an explanation on a, in a spiritual realm as to why these men are the way they are? Could it be that there is evil at work here? Could it be that these two men at some point, probably over time, have given themselves over to evil thoughts and desires and behaviours so many times that that evil power has taken over them, taken such a hold on them in a powerful way? Could it be that these two men are quite literally being tormented by demons? As one commentator describes that experience, the you know, demons, the bodily form of hell itself. Now, hold on a minute, Caleb. Are, are, you, are you genuinely trying to get me to believe in you know, angels and demons? That some, how could somebody in, you know, could somebody in 21st century Britain really believe that that is a thing? Have, have we not kind of moved past that? Is, is that what I'm trying to say and suggest might be happening here? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and I think you potentially might be being a bit naive if you reject the idea completely. Andrew um, Del Bonco, who is a professor at Columbia University, is an author and he's an atheist. He doesn't, as far as I'm aware, does not believe in God. He said this, I think I've got a quote that you could put on the screen, Bridget. He said, modern people have underestimated the power and complexity of evil. Our sanguine theories of the simplicity, manageability, and controllability of evil have left us completely unprepared for the reality. <laughs> Isn't that so true? That our, you know, we, we can try and pretend and think, oh no, there's no evil at play. You know, the devil, not a thing, just a, a kind of construct. We can go down that route. This guy suggests that that leaves us completely unprepared for the reality of evil when we come face to face with it. I think you probably know that this is true. How else can you explain some of the horrific things that people can do? You know, I'm not just talking about the, the Hitlers and the Harold Shipmans of this world. You may just come across somebody or bump into somebody, see somebody, observe somebody who you're left with a feeling of like, there's something else at play here that doesn't seem like that's them. You know, yes, there's, there's part of them, but there's something else at play behind these actions. There's some kind of power at work that is not good. I think the, the church in Ephesus in the first century was probably dealing with situations like this all the time. And Paul tells them in Ephesians 6 verse 12, he says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You know, let's, let's be really honest about this. Some of you might have even felt a, that kind of powerful tug of evil upon you. You know, that, that temptation to say or to do something that actually when you stop and think about it, truly horrifies you. Now, yes, of course, like mental illness, 
is a thing. There, there are many factors that go on to, to lead people to, to act in disturbing ways. Yes, absolutely. But as, as Tom Wright puts it when talking about this story, he says, yes, there might be all kinds of things going on in all kinds of different situations. But he says, there remains some for whom the ancient explanation of being possessed by a demon still seems to be the best. Sometimes we can work out and think through all the different ologies and we're left with the conclusion, actually, there is demonic activity here at work. Here's my point. There is evil at work in our world. And, you know, while it's important not to overemphasize the work of the enemy, it, it's also naive and dangerous to, to just try and explain everything away without an understanding, a good understanding of the evil forces that are, that are at work um, in our world. So, how does Jesus react in this situation and what can we learn from him? Well, the interesting thing in this version in Matthew, he doesn't actually give that much detail. Uh, in fact, in the whole encounter here, you might have noticed this yourself, Jesus speaks one word and that's it, the word go. That's literally all he says in Matthew's account. There's no shouting or screaming. There's no chasing around, pinning these two men down and performing all kinds of maneuvers on them. No drama at all on Jesus's part. Just one word, go. Now, I know there is more dialogue um, in Mark and Luke's versions, but there's still no drama on Jesus's part. And, and what's the result? Well, we read, don't we, that Matthew tells us that the demons left the men. They go into the pigs who have this kind of strange thing where they all throw themselves into the lake uh, and drown. And then the whole town is pretty upset about this. Kind of understandably, I have some sympathy for them. You know, they've just seen in one, you know, one of the other gospels, it, it describes there being 2,000 pigs and they've all just um, thrown themselves into the lake. So they asked Jesus to leave their region. And, and in Matthew's version, what happens next to the two guys? They barely get a mention either. I don't think this is, you know, Matthew's lack of compassion or anything. I just think he's got something else in mind. If you remember, throughout the last few chapters, the teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, every single one of these stories, it's all about Jesus showing his authority, who he is. And uh, we've seen, haven't we, his authority to, to heal the man with leprosy with the words be clean, his authority to remotely heal the Roman centurion's servant, his authority to heal Peter's mother-in-law with a touch, his authority to drive out demons uh, from many who were possessed and heal all the sick who came to him, his authority to calm a raging storm on the lake. All of these demonstrations of Jesus's authority leads to the question posed at the end of last week's story, what kind of man is this. <laughs> Here we have the answer. Where does the answer come from? It comes from the two demon-possessed men themselves. They recognize Jesus as the Son of God and they call him it. We have the answer. Where does this authority come from? Who is this man? Jesus is the Son of God and he has authority over all things, including these evil, shadowy beings. What can we learn from this? I want to suggest that if you find yourself up against evil forces or dealing with someone who is clearly at the mercy of evil spirits, you can take heart and confidence because Jesus has all authority 
over them. There's no need to be fearful. There's no need to be overly concerned. And with as little drama as Jesus, you can take charge, take control of the situation in his name with his authority. And you can bring freedom to people. That's what I think we can learn from this. You don't need to be fearful. don't need to get into the drama of things. You can take control of that situation and take authority in Jesus because he has given it to you. In Luke 10, we read the story of where Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples, people like you and me, normal people, and he tells them, he sends them out to do all the stuff that he's been doing And they come back and it says they joyfully came back declaring, even the demons submit to us in your name. To which Jesus reminds them, he says, yes, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. We can stand strong and firm in the face of evil, not because we've got authority in ourselves, not because we kind of muster up something from within, but because we're going, wherever we go, we're going with Jesus' presence within us and his authority. We approach any of these situations with his authority. And let's just look at some of the other versions of this story to see what a difference it makes to these two men. Mark and Luke tell us that these men are now found afterwards fully clothed and perfectly sane. They're actually begging Jesus to let him Uh, to let them go with him back across the lake and to follow him. What a transformation. You've got two men living in tombs, cannot be restrained with chains, causing a complete nuisance to everybody. Really troubled, disturbed men encounter the living Jesus and they are transformed, found perfectly sane and fully clothed. I love it when Jesus transforms people's lives, don't you? I love it that I love that Jesus is transforming me. You know, I, I you might not find me naked living in a graveyard, but but I am broken. I am messed up in so many different ways. And yet Jesus slowly but surely is transforming me, fixing my brokenness. I love that Jesus is in the transformation business and we see it. One of our distinctives as a church is the word transformation. And we talk about joining with God as he transforms our city, our nation, and our world. Jesus loves transforming individual lives, rescuing them from the grip of evil. And we get to be a part of that with him. Now, there's one final thing that I want to focus on uh, this morning. uh, Before uh, Dave leads us into a a time of communion uh, together. And uh, I think this is something that, that Matthew would have had in mind. But, but remember, Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish audience who would see these things, and it, it sometimes takes a bit more effort for us to see them. Uh, to, to see this, we need to talk about one of those Old Testament things um, that might make us a little bit kind of cringy and uncomfortable, and I'm really glad just isn't a thing for us anymore. You can read all about this in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 11 onwards. There are chapters devoted in great detail uh, to this. We're talking about the distinction that the Old Testament makes between things that are clean and things that are unclean. Animals, objects, food, clothing, even people could be designated as unclean. And generally speaking, something unclean was, what this meant was something would 
when it was unclean, was considered to be unfit for use in worship to God. To, to worship God, to go to the temple, or sometimes even to live in the community, you needed to be clean. And if you were unclean, you could not do those things. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that this is basically like the worst thing. One of the worst, worst things possible for a Jew is to be declared unclean before God. You're unable to be in his presence. And, and actually, many Jews would go to great lengths to avoid becoming unclean. There were all kinds of things you had to avoid if you wanted to remain clean. And actually, sometimes you just couldn't avoid them at all. They were just part and parcel of life. But there were all these rules and that bunch of them there in Leviticus 11 onwards. There's a whole load of, of kind of tradition that was taught on top of this by the teachers, teachers of the law uh, for the Jews in the first century. Um, so for instance, giving birth made you unclean. You can't avoid that if you want to have children. Having a skin disease, not necessarily at your control. Burying a dead relative would make you unclean. Eating a pig or an owl or a camel all made you unclean. All kinds of things could make someone unclean in the Old Testament. And uh, often, for most of these things, th there was a process by which you could be declared clean again. Uh, but it was quite cumbersome. Usually, sometimes it was just like washing your clothes. Sometimes it was, there had to be a period of time that would pass. Sometimes you had to make a purification offering. You had to bring an offering to God uh, and sacrifice that offering to him to be made clean again. So there was a process, but it was quite cumbersome. What has that got to do with this story here? Well, demons are also known as unclean spirits. They were the ultimate unclean to be possessed by an unclean spirit, made you unclean. And in this story, we have unclean spirits. The story itself takes place in an unclean region. There are Jews living uh, amongst non-Jews, amongst Gentiles. The, the unclean spirits are causing these men, uh, to, they are unclean because of the unclean spirits, but they're also unclean because they're living in tombs amongst dead bodies. Touching a dead body made you unclean. And then, as we go through the story, Jesus casts out the unclean spirits into what? Pigs. Unclean animals. And, uh, and what there's, there's just a huge amount of unclean, uncleanliness in this story, a massive amount. Everything in this story is unclean. And then Jesus enters the picture. And what does he do? <laughs> he deals with the problem of unclean completely. He deals with it. The unclean spirits are dealt with. The unclean animals even are dealt with because the unclean spirits go into them and cause them to die. The uncleanliness have gone. The unclean Gentile region is now hearing the good news about Jesus and the transformation he's brought because we read in the other versions that the men go off and they tell the people about what has happened to them and the people are amazed. You've got Jesus coming into an unclean situation and making it clean. I want to suggest that, yes, this is a, a story about Jesus's power over the, you know, the, 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 he's got authority and power over the evil realm, absolutely. It's also a, a foretaste of what, to what is to come, really, and, 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 and a foretaste into the part of the bigger mission of what Jesus was doing. In chapter 15, Jesus goes to war against the whole unclean narrative, 
Uh, he rebukes the super-religious people, the Pharisees, for their view of clean and unclean. He calls them blind. He calls them a lot of things, actually, which is quite offensive. But he calls them blind guides at one point. And he explains that, that actually it isn't the outward things that make people unclean. It's what comes from the heart that makes you unclean. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus again is rebuking the super-religious people for focusing too much on the external things that made someone unclean, but being full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside. And then the climax of Jesus's life and ministry in Matthew chapter 27, we find Jesus, the only one who is really truly clean on the inside. We find him being beaten and spat upon by unclean Roman soldiers. Jesus is defiled in many ways by this crucifixion beating experience. He's taken outside of the city, which is where you took things that were unclean to be dealt with, whether it was a person or your rubbish or things that would make you ceremonially unclean. You took them outside of the city. That's why the Jews wanted him crucified outside of the city, because it was an unclean thing to do. Some Jews took this to an extreme. And actually, I was reading this week, I didn't know this before. And some Jews were so obsessed with like the cleanliness, uncleanliness thing outside of the city that they would not defecate within the city walls. They would walk up to two miles to go to the toilet outside of the city walls. This was where you did the unclean stuff of life outside of the city. Jesus, the only one who is clean on the inside, is made unclean, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean by this crucifixion experience. He's not just, when he dies, when he's put to death, he's not just taking our sin and our guilt and our shame upon himself and dying with it. He's rewriting the whole clean and unclean narrative. He is doing away with the problem of unclean once and for all. This story here of Jesus casting out these demons into unclean pigs, dealing with the unclean problem, is just one of many stories where Jesus is making all unclean things clean again. And that's why, as we come to celebrate communion in a moment, we can celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made. Yes, he was a, a sacrifice for our sin, that was acceptable to God, but he was also a purification offering sacrifice to make us clean so that when we, can, when we come to God, we come into his presence, we just by putting our trust in him do not need to worry about being unfit for his presence, being unclean in his presence. We have been made clean once and for all. That's why as the writer of Hebrews puts it, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can confidently enter his presence because we've been made clean by Jesus's act of sacrifice. He was that purification offering once and for all. It's a joy, isn't it, to know that. <laughs> it's a joy to be able to stand here today, not, not in my own cleanliness, ceremonial righteousness, but in Jesus, simply because of what he did on that cross I am made right and made clean before God and I can enter his presence and worship him. So I'm going to hand over to Dave, who is now going to lead us um, through communion together where we celebrate this sacrifice that Jesus has made.